Well, it is good to see your faces. It's good to be together. Uh, so I got to tell you that the last service uh, at 930, uh, I'm sorry, at 9, I guess it was about 930 where I caught on. Uh, but at, at 9, people were, were yelling, amen. There was some hallelujahs. They were, they were really loud. It's not a competition. But if it were, I want you to win. Okay, so uh, maybe you could just, just, just let's practice together. Okay, can we practice that one time? Let's, let's, let's try an amen. I'll say amen, and then you respond. Okay, amen. Yeah. You guys, you're awesome. Okay, uh, let's get crazy, and let's say uh, hallelujah. Okay, I think you're catching on. Now, I don't know what the last one was that was yelled out, but what was it? God is good. That reminds me all the time. And all the time, God is good. We are going to go to, we're going to walk through uh, and review where we've been in the passage in in, uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 4. We're going to talk through that. We're going to identify Noah. We're going to talk about some terms uh, that will help give some context to the passage today. We're going to look at two personalities, Noah and God, and we're going to do a little bit of compare and contrast in that. Not just that, but then we're going to look at five truths together. And in those five truths, what we'll see is that it doesn't, it, it, those truths are not just true in the Old Testament, but they touch us today. And they affect us, and in some ways infect us as we move forward. We'll have an opportunity to Uh, go to the communion together today. And in doing so, we're going to remember that Jesus is our ultimate uh, provision and how God himself has put us together, (laughs) has protected us from the, the flood, and has ministered to us by his work and death on the cross and resurrection. So we're going to have some fun together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to jump in this. Jesus, we love you. We need you. We thank you and praise you. And we ask that you would be exalted and lifted up. And even today, as we, uh, as we talk through your word, as we identify from kind of a high level uh, ways that you move and interact with humankind, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And as we look at your word and consider some things, Lord, we ask that you would Uh, help us to engage in a special way with you today. That it wouldn't just be information, but that our hearts would be transformed to be more like you by the power of the resurrection. Lord, and and the authority of your word, we would ask, Lord, for uh, direction and guidance. And and Lord, that it, it would just, we would honor you in all of these things. We love you. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. That was pretty good. Amen? Amen. Good job. I'm really proud of you today. All right. Well, let's let's take some time and let's review. So we've been in Genesis chapter 1. And as we go through Genesis chapter 1, what we see is that this is God's word. And God's word is actually about God and God's interaction with humanity. And how God interacts with humanity in such a way that life is extended. In other words, that we get life through through his word because of his work and because of obedience to him. And following God is very important, we'll see, as God interacts with humanity. 
starting in chapter 1, we see this creative God create. And it's really interesting. Out of nothing, there is something. And God is the one who speaks it into existence. In chapter 2, we see God create Adam and Eve. And, and in this creation, he breathes life into Adam. And we're reminded, we were reminded that uh, God, God's breath is given to us. And that perhaps in a way, for those who, when you heard that message, perhaps in a way that every time we breathe, we're actually saying God's name. God's breath in us. In chapter 3, we see this unique uh, crossroad. God previously had told Adam, out of all of the fruit of the garden you can eat, except for the fruit of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's in this place where there's a crossroads. And at this crossroads is a tree. And Eve is tempted by the serpent. And as, as Eve goes to this crossroads, the challenge is this. Will in faith she choose to trust God for what is good and evil, or will she take of the fruit and redefine what is good and evil? Well, we know the story, and we recognize that uh, immediately Adam and Eve are redefining good and evil. And it's in that place, that crossroads, where suddenly they go from being naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. They want to cover themselves. They want to hide, not just from one another, but they hide from God. And as they hide from God, God enters the scene in a way that he asks this question. And the, the question is a real simple question, where are you? But the question does not, it's not a question of, where are you? Oh, you're under the bushes. It's a lament. Where are you? Where have you gone? What have you done? And we can almost hear the heart of God break with the question that he asks Adam and Eve. From there, there is a, a, a prophecy that comes out about enmity between the seed of the woman, those people who are created in God's image, and the seed of the serpent, those people who walk in rebellion, those who walk in rebellion. And then we go into chapter 4. And in chapter 4 is the fruit of Adam and Eve. And his name is Cain. And Cain has a brother named Abel. Abel means breath. And so there's this hint, this echo from the garden of God breathing life into people. But Cain takes things into his own hands and embarrassed of his own sacrifice that's not accepted by God. He kills his brother. And it's in that place that God starts to walk in a unique way with humankind. It's in that place where God calls out to Cain, what have you done? Where is your brother? Again, you hear this lament that his blood, this innocent blood, cries out to God. From chapter 5 to the early parts of 6, we see that there is rebellion. There is wickedness. And this wickedness is is. Uh, just covering the earth to the point where God has something to say about this. Found in Genesis chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up. Uh, today, just so you know, there are no slides up on the screen. We're just walking through this together, kind of a, a little bit more intimately. In Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And then listen to what it says about God. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then it says, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's this God who is walking, and he is perfect. Let's not forget this, this perfection of God. And that sin has entered into the world. And this sin is not just uh, horizontal. It's not just person to person that it affects. It also affects God, the one who created us in his image, the one uh, who made us with purpose, the one who was supposed to, in the garden, uh, identify God's goodness by being stewards of creation, representing God to creation, but also having a unique relationship with God himself, and it's been destroyed in the garden. Again, I don't think we're fully going to understand or or be able to understand the destruction that happened when Adam and Eve chose to redefine good and evil. When they chose to do it themselves instead of walking in faith and obedience with God. There is damage that has occurred that has infected humanity and is still affecting humanity in some significant ways. And so from there, we see that God offers a plan. And it's because that Noah is is righteous, blameless in his generation. And then it identifies, the scripture identifies that Noah walked with God. And God sets up this plan. Instead of completely destroying humanity, he, he uh, saves Noah and his family, those who are walking with him. A flood comes and Noah and creation are uniquely saved. And then when the flood re- recedes, uh, Noah begins a new life. He begins with an offering. So again, keep in mind, this is new. And he begins with an offering, and there is a pleasing aroma. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. It's an interesting thing that occurs in Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. It says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. It would be great if there was a period there. Uh, If the statement stopped right there, that would be great. Again, all of the evil and all of the wicked, presumably up to this point of the story, has been dealt with, has been addressed. Noah is starting everything over. And the first thing that Noah does is make a sacrifice. He and his family, right? And it's a pleasing aroma to God. And then, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. What does God identify here? Well, he has this reality. And the reality is this. Though he's starting new with Noah, there is damage that has occurred to the image of God. Those who bear the image of God. And that damage is heart deep. 
And though Noah hasn't done it yet, he's about to sin in a pretty significant way, thereby uh, breaking a relationship with a son and his descendants, but also a relationship with God. So let's look at some terms. These terms will help set up a framework around the context of what we're talking about. The first term I want to talk about is actually the image of God, that that God uniquely has given this image to humanity, that humanity is the bearer of this image, and that somehow creation is supposed to look at this image bearer and, and at least to some degree understand the authority that God has uniquely given humanity to steward creation. That's a part of this image that God has given humanity. And by the way, Humanity has inherent value individually and corporately because humanity uniquely has the image of God. Additionally, I want to share a phrase with you because I'll, I'll be using this from time to time in the days to come. And that's this phrase, holy echo. Uh, you know what an echo is, right? It's that reverberation of sound. Uh, where you yell into a canyon, hello, and it comes back to you, hello, hello, hello. Well, we get that same idea in Scripture, that throughout Scripture, there are uh, ideas and phrases that seem to echo through time. One of the most profound echoes that we hear, holy echoes, is that question that God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Again, identifying that that's, that's not about, you know, are you under a bush, but in location to me, where are you? For Adam and Eve at that time, they're hiding from God. They've sinned. They're ashamed. They have redefined what God said to trust him on. They've redefined good and evil, and they're hiding. They're away from him. And that echo comes out a lot of different ways uh, throughout the scriptures. And we see it even with, uh, uh, even with Cain and Abel when God asks Cain the question, where's your brother? And then the next question, what have you done? And there is this echo that is coming from the garden. Come close to me. Where are you? You're supposed to be here. Humanity's role, in part, is to be near God, to walk with God. And that's what we see in Noah himself, that Noah is walking with God, at least early on, at least in his generation. We'll get into that in a little bit more detail. Uh, The third term that I want to share with you is character or integrity. Uh, character uh, or what type of person we are, but integrity, what do we do when no one is looking? I think that's an important aspect that we have to identify because it's that aspect, that piece of integrity that it appears Noah was missing. In relationship to his generation, we see that he's blameless and even righteous compared to his generation. He walks with God, and sometimes that's actually easier Well, it's easier because we see the bad examples around us pretty clearly. Growing up in a home where alcoholism was just a part of life, uh, it it strongly discouraged me from drinking, not because I wasn't interested, but because of what I saw the fruit of it was. Ah, I see what that does to my uncle. I see how that affects this family. I, I don't want that. And so sometimes... When there is evil around, actually being righteous is, is maybe even a good thing. But what happens when we're alone? Or an easier thing, rather. What happens when we're alone, when nobody seems to be watching? That's the problem that Noah has. 
And, and, and if you want to just take a moment to look at it, it's found in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. This is what it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. By the way, the last time this phrase is used, it's about Cain. If you go back to Noah's great-grandfather, I think that would be to the sixth power, I think that's how you would say it, uh, that's a man named Seth. Seth's older brother is Cain. Cain is the one who killed Abel. Cain worked the soil. By the way, that's also a part of uh, uh, the curse of humankind, of man specifically, that he'll toil the ground. And Noah goes back to the family business. Not a, it's not about farming. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that we'll start to see here that Noah goes to work and God's not invited. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Pause there. There, We're going to see in just a few moments that there's perhaps more that happened there. It's, it's hard to say what exactly happened. But if we're thinking in terms of echoes, stuff that happened in the garden uh, that is echoing throughout time, we see this here. There is nakedness. The first time nakedness is discussed is with Adam and Eve. And when they're walking with God, they're unashamed. When they decide to redefine what is good and evil by taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly there is a change. They're naked and ashamed. And this, this ashamedness is about covering themselves from each other. You, you can't fully know me. It's also hiding themselves from God naked and ashamed. There's a connection here. I think it's it's much deeper than even perhaps we understand. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Oh, why did that happen? Again, Noah, after coming off of the ark, uh, after doing what God had called him to do, his lifelong purpose, after God is starting uh, over with Noah, he decides to walk without Noah, or without God. He decides to work without God. It doesn't bring him into it. And that affects and infects a lot of people, which brings us to our next word. The word is wickedness. Uh, that's how we translate it. It's actually a word raw. It, it is often translated as evil. If you look at the Paleo-Hebraic roots of it, and you're willing to uh, look at uh, Hebrew at times is more of a pictograph. Uh, so there are these pictures that represent different things. And if you're looking at the word raw, you start to see that there's, okay, there's a head and an eye. There's a head of an eye. And what does that mean exactly? Perhaps uh, some have, have uh, identified it that it could mean first sight. What is first sight? Well, again, you go back to the scriptures and look at the first sight. <laughs> it seems to be uh, Eve looking at the fruit. She saw that it was good. It's the first time that she takes her eyes off of God 
and on to this fruit. It's a first sight that takes her to the fruit of redefining what is good and evil, separate from God. So wickedness, this evil, could be about returning to the redefinition of good and evil, the first sin, the first sight. Finally, what we see in terms of building some context around this are these, phrases, these ideas, these, uh, these principles of mercy and grace. Throughout all of this, we see wickedness rising up and God has to address it. In God addressing it, he preserves Noah and his family. Noah and his family end up uh, 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 off of the ark. They repopulate the world. That's a part of what God has given them as a mission to be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's a part of it. But what God identifies is that there's still wickedness there. So if, if there's anything good, then it's going to come from mercy and grace. Mercy being not getting what we deserve. What we deserve is, is uh, completely being wiped out. Why do we deserve that? Well, because our sin is not just against one another. More specifically, it's against a holy God, a perfect God, a loving God, a kind God. It's hiding from him. It's redefining good and evil. But God doesn't give what we deserve. That's mercy. But grace is getting what we don't deserve. So mercy, not getting what we do deserve. Grace, getting what we don't deserve. And there is a provision that God has given. And we see this work out throughout Scripture because this, this Bible that we have is God's story, his interaction with humankind. So let's take a moment and look at some personalities. Uh, as, as we begin to look in these passages, there are two personalities that are primary. The first one is Noah, as we've already identified. What do we know about Noah? A few things. He's blameless in his generation, as we've identified. Yeah, in front of everybody, he's great. But when he gets alone, <laughs> he messes things up. And I'll tell you, just uh, being a pastor for 25, 26 years, we start to see that there are some themes that seem to rise up, maybe even some echoes, and this is one of them. In front of everybody, we're one way, but alone, it looks maybe a little different. And we, we drop our guard, perhaps. That could be part of it. Uh, we think we're okay. We think we don't have to continue with the same discipline that we've been a part of, perhaps. Those are all true. But it's in that place where Moses uh, is blameless to his generation. It's that place that alone something changes. There's a, there's a group in Christian history called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. It's around 300 AD that they start to, uh, it starts to really take off. Sometimes it's referred to as the monastic movement. Um, uh, but what they did is they started to see the world around them really becoming evil. The persecution that was happening in the church and what was being done to people in the church was pretty awful. And so some of them said, if I'm going to follow God, I need to get away from this. And so they ran to the deserts. And they started to form homes in the desert. It, you would think that alone, completely isolated, it would be much easier to not sin, right? I mean, that's reasonable. Uh, but it's not true. 
some of the desert fathers started to identify immediately that they still had issues, big issues. And it didn't matter that the world wasn't infecting them. They said, all we eat is porridge. That's it. And we find ourselves overeaten. We're gluttonous, even though we don't have to be. And even though all we're eating is porridge. They found that they didn't have much, hardly anything, but they were still greedy and wanted more, and they didn't want to share it. Mm, That's a human heart issue. Even though they weren't around people of the opposite sex, they still struggled with lust, even though they were by themselves. They weren't tempted by the world around them. What is my point? My point is that this issue of wickedness has infected all of us. And when we look at Noah, it's easy for us to judge on this side of eternity, but the reality is what Noah struggled with, we all still do. Additionally, Noah walks with God. He's on this journey. Isn't that, isn't that, that's kind of fun to think of Noah on this journey. It's like the, the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something. Hey, get ready. He's walking with God. There is this journey. Of course, we know that through the flood, there is this big journey and that mankind is uniquely, uh, uniquely preserved because of God's work and because of this journey that Moses trusted God. But when he goes back to the family business, he leaves God out entirely. And the reality is that temptation is still ours to leave God out of the business, our work. Well, I said that there are two personalities. One is Noah, but the other personality is God himself. The first thing that we see about God is he judges rightly. You know, he's not tricked in all of this. Oh, I, I mean, there's Noah. He's pretty good. God can judge rightly. He knows the difference. He knows the motivation of the heart. And we see how God works with humankind. It's said that Moses walks with God. So what do we know about God? That God walks with Noah. But we also recognize that Noah, uh, God wasn't surprised when Noah blew it at the end, right? Like he knew it. He knew it was going to happen. But God is a, judge, or God is a debtor to no person. And as long as we're willing to walk with him, he'll walk with us. And we see that in the life of Noah. Finally, Not based on the merit of humankind, God rescues. We see this in God's personality that continually, from the garden, woven all the way through Revelation, maybe even into the end of your Bible and maps and concordance, we see that God is at work and that God is rescuing, that God has a plan in all of this, and it's a good plan. So let's pull out some truths from the Scriptures. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open it up to uh, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in a few places as we look at these principles that we pull out of the life of Noah. Again, recognizing that we're, we're at a high view of this, right? We're at that 50,000 foot view of Noah and his life and pulling out these truths. It's important because we, we recognize that as God has walked in the past with people, he often continues to walk with us, that a truth is true regardless of culture and time. And so we're pulling out these truths because uh, we recognize this truth cross-pollinates. It's not just for a specific moment. Sometimes there are, are things in scriptures that are very specific to uh, a, a people or a person but these truths are ones that are they're universal. They work for us uh, regardless. And so let's look at those. The first truth that we identify is that sin grieves God. Sin grieves God. 
Go ahead and look at the passage, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. Sin grieves God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Hold your spot in Genesis, and now fast forward to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Because if, if this is a, a, a principle that's true, then it should work in, in different periods of time. And so we look to the New Testament, thousands of years later, and it says this in Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, identifying walking in faith, not in fear, not in, not in sin. So what do we know? That sin grieves the heart of God. Why does that matter? Well, uh, it matters for a lot of reasons. One of those things is the spectrum that we look at God with. So on one end of the spectrum, we often will think of God as like this, I don't know, stodgy, mean-spirited person that as soon as you start to have fun, he's ready to squash it out. That's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is like this, this old grandpa kind of spirit who's just tired and is like, ah, I love you. Do whatever you want. It's fine. And the spectrum that we often look at God uh, at or through those lenses is not, it's not good. Like on, on the one hand, God isn't looking to squash fun. On the other hand, God doesn't just give you freedom to, uh, oh yeah, if you want to sin, if sin makes you happy, be happy. That's, that's not God's motivation there. But there is this place in the middle where, where God loves and interacts and works with his creation. And on the other side, sin grieves his heart. Like, I had better for you. I want life. And you're choosing death in this place. When we get to the crossroads where there is this tree, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we consistently have to make some decisions. Will we choose faith? And follow God, trusting him for it? Or will we redefine things? Will we make up our own plan? When we make up our own plan, that's sin. And that sin grieves God. And we see that uh, in the world of Noah and then with some actions of Noah specifically, as we've already identified. The second point, that we don't have to understand God to trust him. We don't have to understand God to trust him. He's God, and it turns out we're not. Like His plans are going to be better. They're going to be above us. They're going to be things that perhaps he asks us to do that we won't fully understand. Consider the life of, of Noah in this situation. It is very possible that the first rain that Noah experiences is this flood. So for God to come to him and say, Hey, Noah, we want you to make this, I want you to make this ark. It's like, why? Well, well because there's going to be rain. Well, what's rain? You know, like, there are all these things that perhaps Noah has not experienced or even understands, but he's at this crossroads of, will I trust God, or will I redefine good and evil? And it's in that place, that, that crossroads, that we, we have to recognize. Admittedly, we, we perhaps don't hear this, this authoritative voice from heaven, but we do have God's word, and it's really clear in his words how God wants us to 
obey him, how he wants us to follow him, how he wants us to call on Jesus as our Savior and walk in discipleship, being obedient to his word. Like, like that's there. We don't have to understand everything. He's God. We're not. Uh, I like the way that Isaiah uh, 55, 8 and 9 says, he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, in ordination, one of the questions was, define God. And I, and I said, I can't. I can give you some qualities of God, but if I could define him, I'd be God. <laughs> right? Like, he's, he's knowable, and yet he's so much larger than we could ever put our brains around. And he's God, and we're not. We don't have to understand the entire plan. We just have to be obedient in that moment. And that's what we see with Noah. <laughs> Third point. The majority, the majority rule does not elect God's plan. The majority rule does not elect God's plan. In other words, the life that, or the world that Noah lived in it was wicked all around him. Uh, there was evil everywhere. Uh, they were voting. And they were voting evil. They were voting to take from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. To ignore God and to do their own thing. Uh, That's what their vote was. But their vote doesn't decide God's plan. God decides God's plan. And sometimes in our own cultures, we're at that crossroads where the culture is speaking really loud. This is it. This is what, these are our values. This is what we should do. But the majority doesn't rule as it relates to God's plan. And they certainly don't get to vote. And when there's a vote, uh, God doesn't change his mind. Oh, that's better than what I had in mind. God doesn't do that. No, God's plan is still God's plan. And we see that lived out in the life of Noah. In fact, Noah is obedient uh, to God's plan throughout throughout these passages. Up until the end, as we've identified. Fourth point, the best we have is insufficient. The best we have is insufficient. Noah is the best we have (laughs) in this passage. He's the best we got. And in the end, he still sins. He still walks away from God. He still chooses to not be obedient to the Lord, at least for a moment. And that same issue is ours today. Romans 10 or I'm sorry, Romans 3.10 says it this way, uh, none is righteous, no, not one. And then, of course, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have been at that crossroads and chosen our own way. Our best is still insufficient. The final point, uh, the final truth that I want to pull out of this, uh, and I think this is important because it does lead us into communion, and that's this, God provides. God provides. It's not, it's not based on merit. You didn't, you didn't just earn this. You're not just good enough because God's, uh, God's level here is not grading on the curve. It's perfection. Uh, that's God's plan. And we've all sinned and fall short of it. So any provision that God does is not based on our merit because we fall short of that. But God has supplied a way. For Noah, it was in this ark. For Noah, it was safety in the ark. 
for Noah, it's the landing <laughs> and the safety at the end. For us, it's found in Christ himself. For us, it's found in Christ himself that though these, these floods rise up in our culture, though these, these things happen, the reality is still true that God is provided for us and what God has provided is himself. That he was willing to take our sins on the cross. That he was willing to die on the cross. And not just that, to give us life. For anyone who would call on his name, he's given us his spirit. That's a big deal. And that's something that we can't overlook. In fact, for centuries, believers have gathered together and they've remembered what Jesus has given us. That there is a body that was broken and it's Jesus. That there is blood that was shed and it was Jesus's. Not ours. And he reminded us to participate. As the worship team comes out in just a moment, I, I, I want to challenge us. As we participate in communion today, let's not let it be a rote practice. Just something that we do like a religious obligation. But rather that we engage very purposefully. Recognizing that God provides. Recognizing that God has a plan. Recognizing that we fall short of it. And that it's only through Jesus' rescue that we have this life. As we participate in communion, um, we remember that life given to us. You may be wondering how that works here. There are two stations you notice up at the front. We ask that we take a little bit of time. And the first part is, am I a believer? Am I a follower of Jesus? And then the second part is this, to examine our hearts. Is there any unconfessed sin? Are there any areas where I have chosen to redefine good and evil, to get my way, instead of waiting for God's provision to do it my way? And if so, to repent. To repent means to change our minds. We're convinced that God's way is better, to turn from that and to follow him. Uh, That's repentance. And it may come in the form of even uh, prayer. We know that as we pray, as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's a part of this, to pause before the Lord. As you feel the peace of God to move forward, what we would ask you is you'll notice the carpeted areas. We would ask you to go to those areas and, and, and to make a line to, if you're on this side of the worship center, to go to that station, this side, go to that station, and then return to your seats in that outer area. If you need to be served in your seat to wave your hand, we have ushers and greeters who are around the room looking for somebody, and they're happy to serve you in your seat if it's difficult for you to make your way to the, uh, to the stations up front. Then we'll continue in worship. After a couple of songs, I'll come back out and we'll participate together. As we do that, I want to encourage you to be thinking about how God has uniquely and specifically provided for you. In Christ, for sure, but also in some specific, specific ways to you. Be thinking about that as you examine your heart and we go before the Lord.